Welcome to the show, folks. Hey, this is Ed Fallon, and we're broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, as I like to call it, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Hey, thanks to our sponsors, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. Hey, a quick shout-out to the Des Moines Irish Session for providing our bumper music. Uh, later in the program, Charles Goldman's joining us, and then even later in the program, Kathy Burns and I will talk farm and food. But first, it's my pleasure to welcome to the program Iowa State Representative Bobby Kaufman. Bobby, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Ed. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, enjoying enjoying our early spring, although I know it's uh, going to be big payback time if the uh, trees bloom too early and the front and a killer freeze comes in in April. That's what I'm worried about as well. We can't have that. Yeah. Hey, so I want to talk about a couple things. Eminent domain, income taxes. Let's start with eminent domain. Big issue here in Iowa, big issue in the upper Midwest, uh, especially with these carbon dioxide pipelines following on the heels of the Dakota Access Pipeline uh, situation. And last year, uh, legislators um, in the House, the House passed a bill that um, required a certain threshold of landowners to sign voluntarily in order for eminent domain to be considered. This year, now that didn't pass the Senate, passed the House, not the Senate. This year, you've got a different approach. Tell me about it. Absolutely. I, I will not stop. The issue of protecting private property rights is one of my top issues, and I'm very non-discriminate. I don't care what the product being allegedly shipped or transported is. Uh, I'm a purist from the perspective of I don't believe that government theft, which is what I call eminent domain, should be something that people have access to unless there's extraordinary circumstances. So we tried what we tried last year. It didn't work out in the Senate. So we're trying a second approach. And this time, we are having a bill that does two things. Number one, it gives legislative control. If a certain number of legislators, right now I believe that number is 20, but I'm open to what that number should be, uh, object to a any sort of entity wishing to procure eminent domain, then the legislature would be able to object and then put that into our laps, which is, in my opinion, where something of this magnitude should be decided. The second thing, though, and I think this is going a little bit under the radar, and this to me is the most important part of the bill. One of the biggest issues that landowners face is that the determination of public good is only after hours and weeks and months and years of docket searching and land findings and this entire process that wastes a lot of money that makes landowners go through a lot of stress only to then at the back end find out if a project is actually public use, public good or not. And the key to the bill is that that is flipped. Now, public use, public good would be determined on the front end, which I also think that's good because if they make a ruling that we don't agree with as a legislature, that gives us time to correct it as opposed to now where we get accused of interjecting ourselves in a process, changing the rules midway, et cetera, et cetera. So, Bobby, to be clear, was it, the utilities board would still make the determination of whether or not the intended, the proposed use is public or not. Correct. And they would make that determination still, but it would be on the front end right. and not on the back end, which can be, a, as you know, an incredible amount of time to wait and, and, and be stressed. Right. The hearing for just one pipeline company uh, was, what, three months long? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. That's, exactly. That's on the short end for a lot of these, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. So um, your bill came out of committee on a unanimous vote. The, the one Democrat and two Republicans in the subcommittee all supported it, right? Yes, it is. Well, it, it has come out of subcommittee. It's up for consideration of the full. It came out of, of subcommittee unanimously. It's it's up for consideration in the full committee, which I believe could take place as early as next week. Okay. And what are prospects for passing the passing the full chamber, the full house? I believe the prospects are high. I think this approach is something that is that is resonating with people. It's a new approach, and I think it's a practical approach. Okay, and your real obstacle last year was the Senate. What's, uh, well, how, how is the Senate uh, uh, you know, responding to this? Well, we're taking into consideration some of their concerns uh, that I've heard from some senators about changing the rules in the middle of the process of, of, of not having predictability for these companies. I don't agree with those concerns, but I believe this 
is a solution to their problems. Number one, the legislature should be able to make a determination. Therefore, the process is never stable, as it shouldn't be. I said on the floor of the Iowa House last year, if, if, if your goal is to use eminent domain or if your goal is to use government money to fund your project, expect unpredictability. Right, and so sure. I think this approach could have a, a positive outlook on the Senate, and I'm optimistic that we might actually get something done. Yeah, there's always unpredictability. I mean, look at Wells Fargo got a whole bunch of uh, public money to build downtown and suddenly a pandemic hits and suddenly their workforce is staying home and suddenly they don't need this big building that they that the, that the taxpayers subsidize. So, yeah, there's always risk involved. And in that case, you know, Wells Fargo has to give back some of the money. So, sure, if you if you want to invest in an expensive pipeline project and suddenly, um, you know, uh, you, you find uh, things have changed. For example, 78 percent of Iowans don't like what you're doing. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe, maybe it's fair that the legislature should weigh in. So I commend you for doing that. But let me ask you this: uh, one of the uh, Governor Reynolds is a quiet but clear opponent to um, to changing the rules on on eminent domain. I mean, she Bruce Rastert is one of the biggest backers of this project, probably the biggest backer, and he's also a big Republican donor. And it's pretty clear that there are powerful interests within the Republican Party that want this pipeline how do you uh how do you navigate your, your way around that and do you do you anticipate there might be a, a, a veto even if the bill passes the house and senate will the governor veto it my prediction would be that she would not because it would be passed with such overwhelming margins i predict this vote should we get to take it will pass with 70 80 90 percent potentially of the support and i would like to think that something with that level of bipartisan popularity uh, would not be vetoed. If you recall, when we passed the Rock Island Clean Line bill, we finally got consensus on that after years and years. We talked about that on your show as well, Ed. Right. And when it passed, when it passed overwhelmingly and bipartisan, she did sign that. So I, I do hold out hope. Right. And, and even further back, this is BK before Bobby's time, before Kaufman. Uh, well, when your dad was there, and, and he and I were working together on on eminent domain stuff, uh, we passed a, a pretty good bill in 2006. Didn't it didn't foresee these kinds of challenges, but it was it was a, a good bill to deal with some of the challenges at the time regarding eminent domain, and that bill was vetoed by Governor Vilsack and then overrode by the House and Senate. So yes, for the first time I believe in thirty years when that happened. So yeah. you know I think we all stand idle and stand ready uh, for that day, but I truly believe if we get a bipartisan bill passed that we won't have to go down that road. Okay. Well, again, there is, there is division within your caucus on this. I mean, within among Republicans because of some of the powerful interests that want this. But uh, I take some courage to stand up and say, no, we're going to do what we believe is right. So thank you for that. Um, I'm curious about, uh, I mean, I, I know Democrats are a small minority in the House and Senate these days. but uh, And I know Democratic leadership has been very wishy-washy on this bill, shall we say, or at least on the issue of eminent domain. On this specific bill, are they offering any more clarity in terms of where they stand and whether they're going to be supportive? So far, that is unpredictable and to be determined. What I will say, though, is I've had a lot of conversations with my friends on the other side of the aisle that are supportive. But you're right, there isn't just division within Republicans. There's division within Democrats because a lot of times the unions have been weighing in on these projects. And I have to hand it to them. It's, it's pretty smart. A lot of times these projects will make promises to labor to use labor to build these. And therefore, it creates divisions within the party where the unions are asking Democrats to vote no because they want the jobs. Right. And of course, last time uh, when we had a big fight over eminent domain, the Dakota Access Pipeline, I had to, there had to be 20 or 30 instances where people reported from construction sites they would see for every ten cars you'd see, one had an Iowa license plate. So I, I, I just want to ask labor unions, how well did that work out for you? <laughs> you know, how many? Exactly. Yeah, so, hey, let's switch gears. Um, you've got uh, you're involved with some income tax legislation that I think it's uh, it, it goes further than Governor Reynolds wants to go, and I might say it's probably going to generate some level of controversy. You want to eliminate the income tax completely in Iowa. That is the concept that's before us, but I want to make it clear that it's a concept. We have a lot of folks that are very interested in Iowa becoming a 0% income tax state. I'll give you an example. I spoke with the Sioux City Chamber last week, and they were, were begging almost for 0% income tax rates because they're so uncompetitive 
when they're on the border with South Dakota. Now, I'm keenly aware of the debacle in Kansas. And so knowing that this is an issue that I will be dealing with, we decided to be proactive and try to push some concepts out there for public debate. You are a part of that right now. We're having this conversation in a public debate, and I'm open to any and all ideas. But the concept is unique because we sit on a $3.5 billion taxpayer relief trust fund. And that money has a lot of temptations from both parties to do things with it. And I personally believe that money belongs to the taxpayer. So the unique circumstances that we're putting out there for public debate and for input is to take that money, partner with IPERS, who has a track record of having a good investment uh, scenario, and then the interest from that fund, which is typically over $100 million, would be used to extremely slowly, methodically, and intelligently take this down. So if one year there's $125 million, for instance, generated from interest from this fund, then that would break down, that would draw down our income tax rates by 0.01%. So you're looking at a situation where this could take five years, 10 years, 20 years. I'm not being prescriptive intentionally because the bill is just a concept that we're putting out there for discussion. So what do you say to uh, the Democratic leaders um, in the House, uh, her uh, comment, and I agree with this too, uh, Jennifer Confer said that 500,000 Iowans already do not pay income tax, uh, and then that the uh, an income tax cut benefits the rich mostly. How do you how do you how do you, what do you say to that? I believe that income tax reductions help anyone that is producing income and paying on it. How that breakdown is percentage wise, I, I don't pretend to be the arbiter of those statistics, but I do know that while of course it will affect those that have a higher income, that's indisputable. I'm not I'm not challenging that, but. I know a lot of middle class families, middle class families, excuse me, if they were to be given a $500 to $1,000 break on their income taxes, I guarantee you they're not using it to go to Disney World. They're going to use it to reinvest here in Iowa in, for instance, the grocery store sure. or the restaurant that you that. have to use as, as, as an advertiser. So that would be my response to that is that, of course, it's going to affect higher wage earners, but I also believe it will affect middle wage earners. Sure, so middle-class Iowans would indeed pay less. I get that, but there will be a tax shift at some point, correct? I mean, you're going to have to get revenue to run the mechanics of government somehow, and if it doesn't come from income tax, is it going to be an increase in the sales tax, property tax, um, use other various types of use tax? What's going to go up to accommodate for the income tax cut? Well, number one, we still have a very robust corporate tax rate. We don't touch that in the bill. Um, obviously, I think, and this is where we'll disagree respectfully, I like to think that when people get money back that was supposed to go to government and they reinvest it, that they would have not been able to make purchases, that the receipts from those sales will add to our coffers. Will it be as high as it could be? No, but I personally witnessed the budget explode just in my 10 years from $5 billion up to pushing $9 billion. I, being in government, believe passionately that we can streamline some of those funding sources and not affect critical resources that people and taxpayers depend on. So, but, but did, did I hear you imply that sales tax would be increased? Not necessarily. We're not prescriptive okay. on that. This is a, a, a two to 10 to 20 year bill. So I intentionally don't be overly prescriptive so that we can have these conversations so that people can come to me and say, hey, here's what funding source we want to have. Perhaps some will say we don't want to go all the way to zero. Perhaps some will want a sales tax increase. Perhaps some won't. I am truly open to debate on how this is to be designed. That's why the bill doesn't come out and say, we're going to zero percent next year. That would be a mistake, in my opinion. Right. Isn't the biggest, uh, at least from my point of view as a taxpayer, my, the, the biggest burden of taxation is at the federal level? And I don't know what you can do or say about that, but I'll, I'll just make that observation and invite your response. And, and I would completely agree, not only at the federal level for taxation, but at the federal level, in my opinion, on inflation. And this, to me, and again, we probably respectfully disagree on this, and that's okay. But for me, this is a, another way to battle sky-high inflation. Can we affect federal taxes? We cannot. But can we make sure that Iowans have a little bit more money in their pocket to 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 push back against the dollar that's in their pocket already being diminished in value? That's a debate that we can have, but it's one that I that I believe is worth having. And uh, do you see any any bipartisan support for any of the uh, tax proposals on the table this year at the legislature? Um, 
If I'm being a realist, probably not. But <laughs> that's why I am open for discussion because last year we were able to pass a property tax relief bill that had zero Democratic no votes. So I truly am open for conversation, and that's why we're not overly prescriptive in the legislation until it becomes closer to a reality. Yeah. Hey, well, I really uh, thank you for taking the time to join us, Bobby. Uh, folks, we've been talking with Bobby Kaufman. Uh, State representative from uh, Eastern Iowa, Cedar County, maybe Johnson County. I'm not sure the parameters of your, of your district. Cedar, Muscatine, and Scott. I don't oh, have Johnson anymore. Okay, Cedar, Muscatine, and Scott. Hey, Bobby, thanks so much for joining us, uh, folks. When we come back, uh, Charles Goldman's my guest. We're going to move forward on a, on a whole new direction in a few minutes here on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed and his services are offered on a self-pay negotiated fee basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks to our partners and sponsors, including Catholic Peace Ministry, that's an independent nonprofit, no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese. Catholic Peace Ministry focuses on nuclear disarmament, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the need for diplomacy in Ukraine, and ending the permanent war economy. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. Thanks also to Western Optometry. Dr. Joel Westerman and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment in Des Moines East Village. That's Western Optometry. All right, Charles Goldman is with me in the studio now. Charles, I've got bad news for you. <laughs> shark attacks, shark bites, death. Death by shark bite doubled in 2023. Okay. I know you're deadly afraid of sharks. That's correct. So uh, just another reason for me to stay out of the uh, seawater. Well, here's the good news, though. If you, if you are a swimmer, you're less likely to be attacked than if you're a surfer. And if, yeah. my, if I'm right, you're more inclined to be a swimming kind of guy than a surfing that, kind of guy. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I, I have even more good news. The incident of shark, shark death in the upper Midwest, zero. Not even in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the Mississippi River. Right, where theoretically bull sharks can live in fresh water. Right. And, and Although could, you're more likely to die from the chemicals in, <laughs> in that river than from a bull shark attack. Yeah, well, anyway. Hey, yeah. I, I, another, another fascinating news clip. Um, there was a group in, uh, this was the night before the Super Bowl, a group in San Francisco set a, uh, an autonomous vehicle on fire. And there was nobody in it. So I, I don't know whether it was driving without anybody <laughs> well, in it. Well, or, it's an autonomous vehicle. Well, it can do what it wants, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. It can decide, hey, I'm going to go out to a club tonight and just take off, right? Well, how did they stop the autonomous vehicle? Um, with a, with a, with Molotov cocktails, I believe. Oh, really? Well, they, 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 there's a picture of it just ablaze. A and I'm, it's not quite clear, but there is a group, apparently there's a group called Safe Street Rebels. Right. And they've been operating this campaign of, um, quote, disrupting and disabling driverless vehicles in San Francisco and since 2022. And what is their issue? Um, I think they don't think they're safe. And apparently if they're bursting into flames, I guess they're not safe. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's true. Right. Anyway, if you're firing a rocket-propelled grenade at it, I guess yeah, it's not do. safe. No, that's not safe at all. <laughs> well, you know, when I first saw the story, I thought, okay, is this um, like a protest because the 49ers lost the Super Bowl? Then when I saw that it was a Saturday and not Sunday night, I guess, well, maybe not. But speaking of that, yeah, the 49ers did lose the Super Bowl. Yes. Uh, the Chiefs won. And so far, I guess that indicates that the, uh, the, the, the PSYOP – 
The psyop is still involving, going. Involving it Taylor still Swift. Going. That's right. And the, and the inevitable re, re, reincarnate or re, re coronation of President Biden is inevitable, right? Yeah. Well, you know, Citizen Trump did once again suggest to Taylor Swift that perhaps she shouldn't, uh, you know, support and endorse Biden. Well, yeah, only yeah. And if she was supporting him, he'd be fine with that. Who? Well, oh, of course so, he yeah, would. Yeah, be. yeah. Of yeah. course he would be. Yeah. Well, but. On the other hand, I mean, this this whole thing is pretty irrational because most of the people who are kind of Taylor Swift fans who might be influenced by what she thinks are 15 years old. And, you know, 15-year-olds cannot vote in the United States. Oh, there you go with your pessimism again. <laughs> well, it's just the, the whole thing <laughs> I is know, so turn ludicrous. Turnout among 15-year-olds is pretty low. <laughs> but, you know, right. keep mobilizing. Just keep mobilizing. Maybe in three years they'll vote. <laughs> I, I mean, this this whole thing just shows you, um, you know, the paranoia and the conspiratorial nature of the American populace at this point. I mean, sometimes I do feel we're just going back to feudal times. You know, the Middle Ages were so super. But no, we're going forward, Charles, because we've come up with, apparently some scientists have come up with a great solution to the climate problem. A big umbrella in space. We talked about another crazy idea last week about building a 62-mile-long curtain to stop the Thwaites Glacier from melting. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is brought to us by the same group of scientists, but apparently they want to build an umbrella, a giant umbrella, to shade the Earth from the sun. And they Which say, part of the Earth are they going to shade? I guess they shade, well, since the Earth is spinning. Charles, come on, the Earth is spinning. Remember, it's not Yeah, flat, but I mean, they would still flat. have to sort of aim this block at some point wow. latitudinally. Well, probably wherever the richest Americans live, right? I don't know. <laughs> Miami? I don't know. But anyway, so... Uh, yeah, but they say that if they say that it has the potential to reduce the um, uh, that it could reduce to the, the radiation coming from the sun by about two percent, which would right. keep the planet cool enough to sustain human habitation. And I say, this is insane. I mean, would you agree? Insane? I think it's going to be really hard to carry this umbrella in the trunk of your car, <laughs> which is kind of what no, I wear for my umbrella. The trunk of your spaceship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> an, an autonomous spaceship. <laughs> and I don't know where you find some of these. Well, but um, I, I, just just wait till the next segment. I got one more for you. But okay. uh, but let's 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 for now let's go on. Let's forget about this crazy talk, and go on to even crazier talk because it's real and it's horrible, and it's what's happening with our child labor laws mm-hmm. in states all over the country, including Iowa. Right. And uh, you know, I love I love the fact that I get to say the conservatives are liberalizing labor law, mm-hmm. child labor law. Yeah. But why are they doing this? Why are they making it easier for kids to work in dangerous circumstances? Because they're cheaper. You think it's a, you think it's a cheap labor thing? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I was talking to some to some people a couple of weeks ago, and um, you know, it, it was after the you know kerfuffle that, uh, that you know occurred when they asked Nikki Haley about slavery, and. Um, they were talking about that their view of what's going on in the United States right now, the combination of, again, trying to, you know, legalize uh, illegal work by children in various industries, um, as well as eviscerating unions, mm. is really a return to slavery. It's not chattel slavery. It's not slavery of the, you know, the, the plantations, the, the, the uh, Confederate, you know, sure. concentration camps. Uh, you know, prior to the Civil War, but that essentially uh, turning back. I mean, because the, the child labor laws go back to the most hated president as far as the present-day Republicans are concerned, the FDR, by far, oh. you know, and so— Even more hated than Kenyan-born Obama. Uh, even, well, <laughs> yeah, obviously there are certain elements of the uh, Republican base which would say Obama first um, because of the the whole— white supremacy affiliation. But, I mean, you know, FDR and the New Deal are exactly, and even the mainstream Republicans hate the New Deal, right? Mm. Because it set up so many of the, quote, entitlements. You know, it gave labor power, it set up the National Labor Relations Board, Social Security, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the original labor, the Fair Labor Standards Act, which set rules federally for employment for children, was passed in 1938. The minimum age for most employment was 14. It barred children under 16 from working more than three hours or after 7 p.m. on school days and prohibited anyone under 18 from working in dangerous jobs such as mining and manufacturing. Um, But what's driving 
you know, the liberalization, as you said, of, of child labor laws, number one is the huge number of the uh, immigrant kids who are being put with sponsors, you know, because they, I think it was like... Sponsors like, like uh, meatpacking plants. Well, no, they're, they're, put, they're not... They're not Handed over to these corporations, but yeah, they end up working with them. But they end up working with them. I mean, That's we're correct. talking about kids in their thir- thirteen to seventeen-year-old right. kids, yeah, and doing dangerous jobs. I mean, well, working in a meatpacking plant yeah, by yeah. definition Cargill, is a dangerous Tyson, job. Tyson, JBS, mm-hmm. these these facilities all employ young kids illegally. You know, and, that's um, correct. And but the thing is that even if they're fined like one point five million dollars, like this one place up in Wisconsin, they say it's just the cost, it's of, cost doing of doing business. Right. Yeah, but these kids are working like overnight shifts. Uh, sometimes with uh, with razor sharp equipment, um, in in very high risk environments, uh, on slaughterhouse kill floors. I mean, how can anybody think that's a good thing? Um, well, if you're the corporation and you're having trouble finding people, it's hard to resist the temptation of paying. You know, because the minimum wage, let's say like in Iowa, the minimum wage in Iowa is seven twenty five, um, and you know there's no adult. Who's going to work in many of these industries right. for seven twenty five anymore? Right. Right. I mean, you can't. You know, look at look at the fast food industry thirteen, fourteen, fifteen dollars an hour, but they can legally pay children seven twenty five an hour, and mm-hmm. actually for the first thirty day, ninety days of employment, they can pay them four twenty five an hour. Yeah. Well, so it's like what agricultural labor. You can pay agricultural labor cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. You can you can undercut the minimum wage, and so I mean I I it's. I mean, obviously, we need to, and in some cases, we are going the other direction. We are seeing big campaigns for increasing the minimum wage, uh, campaigns for, um, for uh, you know, establishing unions, and yet you have this 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 this, uh, this counter direction that is, I mean, again, even 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 as we're seeing more and more problems with children already working in the in the workforce, in in, in dangerous jobs, you know, we're seeing states like Iowa, you know, pushing or Arkansas. I mean. You know, Arkansas, I mean, I love one of the arguments that the proponents in Arkansas made for um, the, quote, youth hiring after 2023, quote, restore decision-making to parents mm, concerning the, their yeah, children. That's been, and since, streamline, Reagan, since Reagan, that has been their mantra. Streamline the hiring process for children under 16 years right, of age. Right, and a lot of this is driven, as it usually is, by think tanks, out-of-state think tanks. Because the other thing is, up until two years ago, none of this was going on. And within two years, I'm sorry, four years now, 16 states, the majority of them, red states, changed their laws to liberalize the ability to to hire these children. And evidently, it's the big, the national campaign is being run out of the Foundation for Government Accountability. What it has to do with government accountability, I don't know. It's going to take some horrible tragedy or two to really, and and well-publicized tragedy or two, to really push this back in, in a more intelligent direction. Yes, and unfortunately, it's going to have, I, I hate to say this, but I don't know that the death of of the children who present to the board, the southern border, is going to be what would make people think twice about this. Right. It's yeah, going to point. be, you know, some, you know, white family's kid sure. who is the victim. I mean, it's already happened. The, the, there was a, in the summer of '23. There were three deaths of 16-year-olds in industrial accidents in. I'm trying to remember whether it was in Mississippi. Yeah, one was in Mississippi. One was in, in a sawmill in Wisconsin. Another one was a kid who was crushed by a semi truck at a Missouri landfall. Gosh, and these weren't immigrant kids. Um, these were. These, these were, were Central American kids. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well. I mean, yeah, and, I mean, but you see, that, that again, should be just it, as... it gets back. This is the thing about immigration, which is everybody gets the advantages of this, right? Mm-hmm. Because everyone's so the you know the big issue is immigration followed by inflation. If you ask Republicans in the United States, mm-hmm. right, and everybody wants inflation to be under two percent. Well, you know, if if these jobs aren't done this way, and you have to pay, you know, people who live here fifteen dollars an hour. Mm. Prices are going up, mm-hmm. right? So this is another subsidy to the economy by people who are presenting to this at the southern border. Mm, yeah. Ouch. Well, um, hey, we got to take a short break, Charles. Um, folks, uh, you're listening to Ed Fallon here with Charles Goldman on the Fallon Forum. We'll be back in a minute. 
When we do, we're going to focus on uh, school choice, the uh, voucher program that, uh, well, by, by the way some of us see it, is going pretty badly. And maybe that was not at all intended. We'll see. Uh, we'll talk about that when we come back. I also want to talk briefly about why you shouldn't pick your nose, Charles. <laughs> back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Years ago, Chef George Fromaro envisioned a new market to house all his favorite foods under one roof in the heart of Des Moines. From that vision, Gateway Market was born. Over the years, Gateway has become Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. Gateway's welcoming environment in downtown's Sherman Hill neighborhood encourages discovery and honors the simple pleasures of the table. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, experience the good food difference at Gateway Marketing Cafe. Catholic Peace Ministry was founded in 1980 to work for peace and justice. It's an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese and is guided by an ecumenical board representing many faith traditions. CPM focuses on the urgency of nuclear disarmament and the need for diplomacy in Ukraine. CPM also provides an educational forum about the permanent war economy, which must be challenged if we are to achieve lasting peace and justice. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks again to our sponsors and partners, including Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, Charles, so uh, we're going to talk uh, in a bit about school choice in the voucher program uh, that's happening here in Iowa and other states. But I, I was captivated by the news this morning of a, a new study that concluded that nose picking can introduce germs into your nasal cavity, which trigger the brain to produce stuff that could lead to Alzheimer's disease. And I'm thinking, wow, I, I need to behave myself. <laughs> I, need, I need to back off the old uh, gold mining up there, you know? <laughs> so, but you, as a doctor, probably have an informed opinion about this. And probably you, I'm assuming you're not a nose picker. That's correct. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially um, when you're in medical school, one of the things they talk about is to particularly stay away from that area, like on where the nose meets the face, not in the nose itself, but on the outside. What do you mean stay away from Like when you're... Well, because a lot of people get a lot of oil accumulation and they're always kind of squeezing pimples like right next to... And if the, because of the way the blood supply goes into the brain, if you drive bacteria into that area, it goes directly into this area called the cavernous sinus of the brain. And there are people... So how does popping there. a pimple do that? Well, because anytime you do, even flossing your teeth, you, you drive bacteria. Oh, so flossing your teeth is bad, too. No, flossing your teeth is good for you. Oh, okay. But no, what's interesting is that, um, I mean, I looked at the article from which you got this, and okay. it, it's a little bit less than what the overview was, which is, it's mostly a mouse study showing that the olfactory nerves, which is at the top of the nose, which is why you smell, have a direct connection to the brain. And they are a way of ascending, you know, causing ascending infections. And so anything that will tend to make their, you know, be a disruption of the nasal membranes, like sticking your finger up there. Right. Um, <laughs> or, can, or a coronavirus swab. Could coronavirus swabs be causing Alzheimer's? Uh, it, highly unlikely. 
But um, no, it's really interesting because, you, you know, once again, uh, in, in spite of the internet, um, <laughs> pathogens are, you know, a huge risk to us, not just for the traditional reasons. There are a lot of chronic diseases that are associated with directly the action of viruses and some intracellular pathogens like chlamydia, um, as well as um, the fact that particularly viruses change the DNA in our cells. Mm. You know, and so this idea that not preventing viral illnesses by not being vaccinated or whatever is actually pretty ludicrous because um, there's a lot of things that don't show up right away. You know, I mean, for instance, like people who've been infected with this chlamydia, this specific type, have this is the chlamydia that can lead to the, Alzheimer's. Well, not only that, it's also one that's been associated with increases of schizophrenia. Hmm. And the appearance of schizophrenia is very commonly toward the end of adolescence. Same thing with the, the belief that cats carry pathogens that also cause. Okay, so the bottom line is don't pick your nose. Right. Don't pull your nar- don't pull your nose hairs and get rid of your cat. Well, <laughs> I, I guess theoretically, I mean, you know. Okay, doctor's advice, get rid of your cat. Well, I have cats, so <laughs> I, I didn't. You know, you can't, you can't make your life risk-free. Right. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think people are not understanding the role of inflammation in general, as well as specifically that infectious disease still matters, even in a culture like ours where we are over antibiotics. Well, we're going to have, uh, have Dr. Mark Calendari on this program next week. We'll have to oh, ask great. him a nose-picking Alzheimer's question as well. That's a he, Yeah, well, he, he's an ID doc, so he, he, I'm sure he'll have an interesting take on yeah, it, yeah. too. All right. Hey, but uh, speaking of interesting takes, um, it's been uh, the first year of the Iowa School Choice uh, slash voucher program is, mm-hmm. is in. And, um, well, uh, again, there are, what, 16,000 or so? 17,000, stu- I believe. 17,000 up to yeah. now. Uh, 17,000 Iowa students, K-12 students, who mm-hmm. uh, qualified for a $7,000, $7,600 education savings account grant. And, uh, interestingly... Um, only a small percentage of them were actually public school students. That's correct. Initially, they, they said there was an article in the Wall Street Journal, not a uh, notoriously, you know, uh, woke uh, <laughs> venue, uh, talking about the fate of the uh, or the experience so far. And, and again, it's interesting how quickly this was adopted by uh, the same the same suspects as the child labor uh, changes. <laughs> and um, that... Uh, Again, it was only over a two-year period. None of these programs existed until 2020 until Arizona put theirs right. in place. And Arizona actually has the longest experience with it. And Florida has some – with Florida, it was a few years ago, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. But Arizona was number one. And right. Now it's Ohio, West Virginia, Arkansas. I mean, the, again, the usual suspects. You know, and the situation in Iowa is that what was the rationale for this, right? As always, it's to give the parents – Right. More control of their you know, child's education. Right. So um, the result so far has been it's way more expensive than it said it was going to be. It's $50 million already more expensive. And remember, uh, this upcoming school year, they're going to uh, increase the income uh, floor to four times federal poverty level. So it's going to be family of four with over $100,000 could still qualify to get this money. And then a year later, there's going to be no floor right. on the income. Interestingly, no one is exactly clear about what's the, what's the income distribution of the people who are getting this right. in Iowa. You would think that something would be pretty easy to have since you have to fill out an application in which yeah. you... Do you, yeah. do you think they're intentionally not sharing that information? Or uh, well, I think you can pretty much assume that's the case. Yeah. In other states, it has pretty much shown that the group that benefits the most in spite of them claiming it would help lower-income students to have more choice, the group that benefits the most are um, people in the upper-middle-class strata. Right. And in every state, it's been the same, which is around two-thirds or sometimes higher of the students who are getting the scholarships already were in private school. Right. So they are not generating. And then, of course, just like every program where the government guarantees payment in some way, what do you think has happened? Tuition at these private schools has gone up. Of course. You know, and so in fact, it's not even to the individuals who are supposedly benefiting from this really been that much of a benefit because, and then of course, when the tuition goes up, they blame it on Biden because (laughs) it's like inflation, right? This is Biden's fault. Um, 
But no, I mean, it... I was going to blame Alzheimer's or Biden <laughs> until I discovered it was nose picking. That's right. So, I mean, I guess the question is, what was supposed to be the, the value of this? Yeah. I mean, what well, was I mean, the behind goal? the scenes, the real value is this is a way to privatize education. This yes. is a way to And I think that's what most people... And continue to gradually move public money into private hands. We, we've, we've done it with prisons. We've done it with Medicaid. Uh, we've done it with all kinds of... Uh, we, we've done it in parts with our military. You know, we've done it in so many sectors of what should be and have historically been public services. And we see it now happening in public education. Well, you know, the Iowa program is a little bit different in that it's one of the few where they actually kept the curriculum oversight under the um, Department of Education here, whatever. I'm, it's, not, it's not a department. I can't remember. That's what it's called. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, a lot of states, it's just freewheeling. You mm-hmm. know, the, there's no standards for the curriculum. Mm-hmm. There's uh, and and but even in Iowa, there's also no nothing to force these private entities to take special ed kids. You know, right. um, well, in a lot of states, there's frank discrimination based on religion primarily. From you know, since many of these are religious schools. So um, if you're a Muslim, you need not apply to yeah, or Jewish private Christian you know, school. Correct, okay. and you know, and and then of course, what these schools are doing is it's bad enough they're discriminating against the student body they're picking. But they were also discriminating against their employees by making them all ministers and therefore claiming that the, the, the person who cleans the floors at night is actually part of the ministry, which means they're exempt well, from why protections. Do they, why do they need to do that? Because they're exempt from federal protections against being fired uh-huh. for uh, without cause. So um, so you, you, you have to become a member that the church that's sponsoring that that uh, that private school you have to if they will even hire you at all you have to adhere to whatever the religious beliefs are of who's ever running the school this is the irony of all this is that this is going right back to the 1970s in the 1970s one of the things 1970s or 1870s 1970s in the 1970s one of the things that drove the fundamentalist protestant movement toward the republicans was that the government tried to shut down a bunch of these segregation schools where that you know the the white southerners had gone to hide mm-hmm. from the colored <coughs> hordes that were going to the public schools? No, I mean that's what they were. They were and they wanted to be able to, to segregate, and at the same time they wanted to be able to violate federal law mm-hmm. and get tax deductions mm-hmm. for being nonprofits. And this is the revenge from the 1970s. And it's working. It's working. I mean, at least in some states. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, Iowa's unusual in that actually part of the Iowa story, as I said, is to keep it under the control of of the government. And the second is to pay the districts who are losing the students a small stipend. But not not enough to make it. No, it's only like $1,700. Des Moines Moines Public School, for example, that's the largest district. We have, what, 350 or so districts in the state? I don't know. Between 300 and 350. And uh, Des Moines Public Schools is the largest and it is also the most uh, intensely uh, poor, uh, largest percentage of minorities, and also has seen a declining uh, declining enrollment in the past year. But and, and, it, and declining revenue as well. Yes, that's true. But part of the issue is nationally, ever since COVID, the enrollment in public schools has been declining, has never recovered. And the question is where these kids are. Yeah, where are they? I don't know. No one seems to know. I mean, that's the problem. They, they can't account for them, you know, and that's leading to uh, a kind of a revival of the old truancy laws yeah. being enforced because they, they assume they just gave up. Help me, help me with a kind of a big let's, – let's look at the big, the big picture here. Okay? Mm-hmm. This, this is going to go on for a while. This isn't going to change. We're going to see probably more states uh, will – will initiate these programs. I wouldn't be surprised that here, here in Iowa if the governor does away with the, 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 the curricular requirements as has happened in other states. And so, um, you know, and more and more, uh, more and more entrepreneurs, let's say, are going to set up private schools. Mm-hmm. They won't all be Christian either. Some will be Muslim. Some will be Jewish. Some will be the Satanic Temple. I mean, I, I, I think it's just a matter of time before the Satanic Temple the folks who set up the uh, the, uh, the exhibit the, uh, the exhibit, the exhibit the at the state capitol, yeah. The, the Satanic Temple is going to set up a school. I mean, why not? You well, know, why I, not? You I know, mean, so I, I don't have a problem. I mean, if people want that kind of education, that's fine. I mean, you go to New York and you see that. I mean, that and and actually, for instance, the the Orthodox Jews in New York and, and predominantly in Brooklyn, um, which by the way is actually a county of New York State. 
um, they have huge political power. And they've been able to extort from the state money for the, and do the same thing. They don't really have any oversight on their curriculum. Mm-hmm. The state pays for their busing of their kids and everything else. You know, and the question is, um, you know, is that the responsibility of the government? If you want to send your kid to religious schools, that's your right. You know, and but you're asking taxpayers to foot the cost. So here's my thought. This is going to get so crazy, so out of control, that eventually there's going to be a fix. And the fix is going to be something, it's going to look something like our, our, our public school system looks. Well, the in, fix, the end, in the end, there'll be some kind of a remedy to all the, all the crazy stuff that spins out of this. Well, the other part of this that's becoming apparent in, in a lot of the states that did this is that they're also combining it with the usual, we need to reduce taxes. And it's going to generate deficits of hundreds of million dollars. Yeah. I mean, in, in Arizona, the estimate is that there are already at least $500 million in the hole from this project at the same time that they, they are losing revenue because of reducing state taxes. And in Iowa, it's going to be, the bill's going to be $350 million by two years from now. Hmm. That's, you know, a fair amount of money. And so what's going to happen is that even while they're giving these small subsidies to the districts for the students they lose, they're going to turn around and say, well, we don't have the money for the entitlements, mm-hmm. right? Because we're going to reduce taxes, and we, now we don't have the money. So which programs are going to get cut? Well, mm-hmm. not the police and not right. the prisons. They're going to cut the biggest expense, and the biggest expense for most state governments Education. is retirement fund, is reti- their retirement you know, funds and their education. education. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, um. <laughs> and, you know, this year, of course, here in Iowa, the, the governor is, is now proposing increasing teacher salaries. Mm-hmm. So public teachers would have to be paid more, which um, a lot of us would support, except that they're going to be paid more on less revenue. Correct. Which makes it, it, makes it even harder and harder for the uh, school district to, to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, yeah, we could talk more on this. Um, Charles, we've got to run to a short break. Again, Ed Fallon with you here, Charles Goldman. Actually, we're going we're gonna to go out. Um, we're going to go to a bar, I think, Charles. <laughs> Because um, we're going to turn the mic over to Kathy Burns, who's got a guest, Lee Tesdell, coming on to talk about Kernza. If you've not heard of Kernza, you'll want to check out this next conversation. Can they ferment Kernza? Well, yes. Good question. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, folks, back in a minute with another conversation on the farm and food segment of the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures, great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. I'm Kathy Burns Fallon. We'll get to our topic in a moment, but first... Thanks to our sponsors, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. These days, it's easy to feel overwhelmed, helpless, even hopeless. 
Wherever you live in Iowa, psychiatrist Dr. David Drake can help you through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling, offered on a self-pay, negotiated fee basis. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Well, today we are going to have a, a new topic for our farm and food segment. There's a new grain on the block. It's called Kernza, and I am kind of tickled by how they introduced the product on the website, Tastes Great, Less Tilling. And here today to talk about Kernza is someone who is growing it himself, Lee Tesdell, and he is going to shed some insight into some of the benefits of Kernza and just kind of what you can do with it. Welcome to the program, Lee. Well, thank you, Kathy. Uh, yeah, we're, we're seeing uh, Kernza as a good um, possible uh, crop that we can introduce into our cropping rotations uh, in the upper Midwest. Uh, Kernza has been developed at the Land Institute out in Salina, Kansas. It's a cousin of wheat. Uh, a cousin of wheat. Cousin of wheat, Do yeah. they have family reunions and things? Probably. Okay. <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, we don't know about the details. Okay, maybe soon. Right. Um, but uh, so um, what we like about it as landowners, farmers here, is that uh, it's a perennial. So what does that mean? That, that means unlike corn and soybeans mm -hmm. and oats and wheat and all those other crops, uh, Kernza will grow for two, three years and yield grain each year. Uh, not only that, but it's really a three-product um, crop on my farm in that we get we harvest the grain, mm -hmm. and then we just can just the whole unfettered grain, right? Okay. Which can be made into various products, mm -hmm. and then uh, number two, we can harvest the straw, so uh, oh. bale of straw uh, after harvest, and then number three, it's a great forage. Uh, so what I did on my farm was I allowed it to regrow until November 1st this last year. And uh, meanwhile, I had fertilized it. And then I turned my ewes out onto that, and they were able to graze for five weeks. Because you I, raise sheep I, on your land. <laughs> right, right. I've, I've been uh, raising lamb for uh, over 30 years on my farm. And uh, so this is a great thing to be able to uh, cut down on my hay bill, so to speak, and turn them out um, to graze the, the Kernza. So it's a, it's a very promising crop. Uh, I'm aware of one other farmer mm -hmm. who grew Kernza this year in uh, Iowa, Wendy Johnson up at uh, Charles City, Iowa. And um, the, the challenge now is, is proving to be marketing because we're, we really have to market it ourselves because it's a relatively unknown product. Well, I understand, and, and when I look at the website uh, for the Land Institute and the description of the Kernza, it is being proclaimed as a very climate-friendly, right. sustainable crop. And right. you mentioned that it's perennial, so it uh, it has, that means the roots stay in the ground, right. and it reproduces then the, the grain itself from the top. So Kernza roots, I have read, can be up to 10 feet deep. And I did look to see what winter wheat roots were, and I saw mm -hmm. that they were up to seven feet deep, which right there, you're, you're pulling more carbon out of the atmosphere, correct? Right. And you're sequestering it, you're, you're burying it deeper into the ground. Mm -hmm. Spring wheat is only about three and a half feet deep. So it looks like, you know, the numbers are adding up that that would be a right. good benefit. Also, how do those roots help with erosion or water retention? Right. So that's... Uh we talk about ecosystem services, right? That's a, a term that people are using these days. So what do we mean by that? So what are the benefits for the environment? Mm -hmm. uh, so as you've already mentioned, very deep roots, um, which Im help improve soil uh, health, in addition to helping uh, rainwater infiltrate uh, instead of running off on the surface. Um, we, um, we also notice that because it's a perennial, uh, you have the, the soil is covered all the mm -hmm. time, all year, um, and which means you're going to have almost no top surface erosion. And then in addition, because you have that cover, again, um, wildlife like that, mm -hmm. pheasants and so on, 
Uh, they prefer that, obviously, to uh, tilled ground over the winter. So, um, yeah, we, we, uh, like, we like that very much. And also, it doesn't take a lot of fertilizer. Uh, and no herbicide in my case. Oh, I uh, love that. So yeah. far, right. So surprisingly, we found that the second summer, the Kernza basically outcompeted or squeezed out all the weeds we had seen the first summer. Uh, I was shocked, actually, because I was worried. The first year it looked pretty weedy. Mm. Uh, and uh, we, had, we had planted it too late the previous fall to get grain the mm-hmm. first year. That was our, our fault. Um, but uh, but to get uh, to get to the point where there are almost no weeds the second summer was really shocking. Uh, but there was almost That's no incredible. weeds. That's incredible. Yeah, very nice. Well, the fun part for me is to talk about how it tastes and what kinds of foods you can food and drink you can do with it. And right. Ed and I have tasted several of the types of kernza, of the whole grain itself, right. kind of boiled as a rice, mm-hmm. uh, the, the rolled kernza, and you say that's right. often called uh, flakes, flakes. Mm-hmm. and then the kernza flour. So we right. have made pancakes. We have made uh, just like an oatmeal, but with the flake or the, the rolled product. And uh, we found that it cooked up pretty nice. And yes. uh, I, you actually also know of another product that I'm quite fond of that um, some of the local breweries are... Are working on right so we've I've, I've sold some uh, to a couple of local breweries um, uh, the breweries I think don't quite know to handle how to handle mm-hmm. it yet because the new new grain but the word is out I mean they're bang brewery up in st. Paul various places they've been mm-hmm. brewing uh, currents of beer for a while um, what we found is in our local brewery at Huxley they uh, they like to mix it in with other grains mm-hmm. so you wouldn't necessarily get a kerns of beer, okay. but you would get a beer, let's say, with uh, oats, triticale, malted barley, and kerns or something. So you get four or five different grains in a beer. Well, that might the kerns might be making the beer more nutritious. I, I don't know this scientifically, but I would hope so. So I looked at the website for the kerns, and it says that it's high in protein and antioxidants. It has eight times the amount of insoluble fiber as wheat. It makes it an extremely healthy option. It says... Uh, it just, it looks like it's, uh, it's really up there in the nutrient category and that makes me feel pretty good about it. Right. Yeah. We like that. Um, we like you say, uh, we also have been, uh, cooking and, and baking with it. And, uh, the latest success was last night we had, um, peach, peaches, which we had frozen from our own trees last summer, peach, uh, crisp. Mm. And we used, uh, kerns of flour. I should say, Cindy used kerns of flour <laughs> and kerns of flakes instead of the usual oatmeal and and uh, wheat flour, uh, and that that was great. We're going to have some more uh, tonight. We haven't finished it yet. <laughs> well, Lee, thanks for being on the show. Where can people get more information? Well, the first thing I would do is do uh, an internet search for Kernza, the Land Institute, okay, Salina, Kansas, because that's that's the mothership. They're the ones who breed it. All right. And um, and you can find out a lot about how to use it and how they bred it and and so on the history of it. Um, and then uh, you know there are going to be other uh, uh, places. For example, up in Minnesota, there's a Forever Green program mm-hmm. now, where they they also I think have permission to breed Kernza. Okay. And there's a, a producers co-op forming up there as well. So uh, it's around Patagonia. Okay has uh, kinds of products also. Well, it sounds exciting. Thanks for being on the show. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, thanks to our guest today, State Representative Bobby Kaufman, and to Lee Tesdell, and to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Ed Fallon, and myself, Kathy Burns. Also, thanks to our local small business partners, Gateway Market and Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Westrom Optometry, and David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Catholic Peace Ministry, Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And of course, thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for our music. We'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio. Gonna be a good crop, Dad. She yelled as she got on We're gonna move the winter wheat Into the barn 
grim determination ease my worry just a trace as she jumped up there behind me safe from harm 